crunching the numbers. Thanks to Hume Tennis and Community Centre, a mini Melbourne park in Melbourne's north, which has tennis for everyone. Perfect for coaches and players if you're coming from interstate to train and compete. Close to Melbourne Airport with accommodation available. Find out more at humetennis.com.au. Hello and welcome to Crunching the Numbers, our 2023 version. This is Stephen Huss. I'm here with uh, my co-host, Christopher Tons. Chris, I know it's February, but Happy New Year, mate. Welcome back to Crunching the Numbers. Good to have you. Good heavens. We made it another year. <laughs> as surprised as you were, but uh, yeah, we're yeah, here. I'm mate. excited. Yeah, and we're looking forward to uh, today. We're going to touch on the Australian Open men's and women's singles finals, and we're going to look at some of the statistics uh, from those, and I think it's also a chance to look ahead to the year who we might think you know will continue to have success throughout 2023 but I think the uh, if I could start with this Chris pretty surprising two pretty surprising um, things one the women played more points in their final than the men uh, so it was yeah. 213 points for the women in their best of three set match and then it was 206 points for the men in their best of five match uh, which obviously only went three sets that's pretty unusual that it happens that way obviously a very competitive and entertaining women's final uh, and even though we had two tiebreakers in the men's final um, it felt like it was a bit of a foregone conclusion with uh, with the form that Djokovic showed throughout the tournament especially from about that fourth round onwards where he really kind of rolled through the draw what were your uh, just sort of initial impressions before we get to the, the statistics of the two finals well I, I think the first thing that really stood out to me was how hard they were hitting the ball I know it's not who hits it the hardest I know that but I do think the game is getting bigger and bigger and it's good to keep as a reminder that you know the game is speeding up and that's what really stood out especially what you know I, I know Ravi Kina and, and Sabalenka they're gonna they pound the ball pretty hard but just seeing Djokovic and CT Posse or they were going after it too so that to me really stood out when I watched both no question. Power in the game is becoming more and more important. Um, and we certainly, well, at least in my opinion, we missed Ash Barty in this Australian Open. It was so fun to see her last year win the title uh, and obviously use her slice so effectively. We didn't see much uh, slice in the women's final uh, this year, that's for sure. Um, but we had two very, very big hitters and, and big servers uh, particularly, well, both big servers, but, uh, you know, Sabalenka has had her issues with the second serve and, and the amount of double fault she's been doing, but she's obviously worked hard on that. And so a massive congratulations to her and her team to address to address that throughout all of last year. Um, and I think her yeah. double fault count in the final was at 19%. So, you know, we're talking, talking about she's making eight out of 10 second serves, which is most people would say is pretty good. I think if you're a pro tennis player, you want to be up around that nine out of 10 mark. Um, but I think that also brings in the conversation that nobody is perfect. Even the best players in the world are hitting some double faults. And in fact, the the lowest double fold count was, uh, you know, Alina Rybakina, who only had, you know, 2% of serves. One thing with Sabalenka in that final, she was hitting her second serve harder than Djokovic was hitting his second serve. So she was really going after the second. I, I believe like two of those were maybe in the first game when she was a little nervous. I remember a buddy of mine once said like maybe double faults aren't a bad thing until they get to too many, but it's also, you know, when you make the double faults and, I think for her, yeah, it was probably at, at the right times where it really didn't 
set her back like a break point or something. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you dive in and share, um, you know, some of the, I know you put down to some, some comparisons, some difference between the men and the women. Um, why don't you share some of the information that you found interesting and then uh, I'll yeah. come back with some of my observations. Yeah, so so I, what I did is I, I went back and, and I re-tagged the match. So basically, you know, I break down everything, um, unforced errors, winners, forced errors, and I really take my time when it comes to an unforced error, whether it's forced. So it might be a little bit different than what you see at the, you know, if you look at the Australian Open app, it's, you know, it seems like everyone's plus winners to unforced errors. Like they make more winners. They're, they're a little more forgiving with unforced errors. But anyways, so I tagged the match. So these numbers might not be what you see on the app, but the thing that really stood out, the similarities was just how clean the match was. When you, when you, if you just take a look at winners to unforced errors for Djokovic and Sabalenka, one thing that really helped Sabalenka with, with that, that ratio of winners to unforced errors is I think she had 17. So that gave her, a, a, she had 49 winners. That, that counts, you know, forehand return, backhand return, forehand, backhand, aces and net. And if you take a look at her winner's unforced errors, she was minus three for the match, which that's pretty, pretty dang good. And Djokovic was minus four. And if you compare that to, let's say, Sabalenka was minus three, Rybikina was minus 22. So uh, Djokovic minus four, Tsitsipas was minus 21. For me watching Djokovic, what really stood out to me with Djokovic is you almost have to hit a winner or force him into such a bad position. He just doesn't give away that much when it comes to mistakes, like easy mistakes. And that, that to me really stood out. Uh, even with Sabalenka, that's a pretty clean match. Oh, that's a significant difference if you go from minus four to minus 22 and, you know, minus three to minus 21, I think it was. So, I mean, yeah. that's really that you could say that's where the, the match is, is won and lost. Uh, and that is incredibly impressive. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand the people that play, you know, tennis, high level tennis, recreational tennis, that these are the best players in the world and they're not getting to zero on a differential between winners and errors. Um, so don't expect to go out there and hit 50 winners and only make 20 errors. I think that's good understanding for the people out there playing tennis that winners don't happen nearly as much as we, we think they do. And even the best players in the world you know, find it very difficult to break even in that number. Uh, another thing that, that I thought was maybe similar or surprising to me, because these courts are so fast, the amount of times that both the men and the women got to the net, it's a little bit stricter when I count a net appearance. I count it as, to, does the player have a play at the passing shot and or does the, guy, is the person at the net have a play at the volley? But for me, I, it, this is what I had. I had Djokovic getting to the net where he was at the net and, and Tsitsipas had a pass. I, I had him at the net 11 times. So he was eight for 11. He won 73 and Tsitsipas was 11 for 15. Women was much less. It was Sabalenka six for seven at the net and Rybikina was uh, three for five. So I, I, one thing I was thinking is Djokovic is so tough when the point extends that going in, I was hoping, and I did see a few serving volleys from Stefanos, but I, I thought maybe he could have tried that a little bit more. So I was just a little surprised 
that you know the net count was so low. Yeah, good point, Chris. Uh, it's it's a frustration of mine for sure. Um, I've been actually looking at quite a lot of pro tennis um, and pro players with uh, with a project that I've been doing for for an analytics company. And one of the things that I really see is that players are missing opportunities to take advantage and use the net. And I'm not talking about you know old school. I'm going to serve and volley. I'm going to chip and charge. I'm going to come in. I'm talking about when they gain advantage in a point, uh, when they're dominating a baseline rally and they see somebody, you know, defending, slicing, uh, playing high from a corner. These are times where people should be looking to come forward and utilise the net as a form of pressure. And I think it's being passed up way too often. And I think that both finals were a demonstration of that. I mean, we have four players here with incredible weaponry from the back and from the serve, and they're just not using the net um, to capitalise and finish on points. Now, I'm sure Djokovic would say, well, I, I don't need to. I'm, I'm winning everything. So, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. But I, I totally agree with you. So Sipas, to win that match, uh, has to come in much more. And if you go back to a, a semi-final match, to Sipas against Federer, um, maybe four or five years ago, I, could, I couldn't tell you the exact year, but probably 17, 18, somewhere in there, um, both those guys were at the net 60-plus times, and it was an incredibly entertaining match. And that's the way I thought that Sissipas would play a little bit more. Um, so for him to go away from that and be at the net less, uh, yeah. I don't think he's going to improve his chances uh, to beat Djokovic. So fully agree with you and understand. And from the women's side of things, I know you work with a player that likes the net, Claire Lou. She likes to come forward, and one of the things that, she does, which I, I think Savalenka and Rybakina could both do, is serve and volley a little bit because they both have really good serves. And I'm not talking about all the time, but hey, if you, you know, with that, the way those girls serve, if they can serve and volley three, four, five times a set, and then they can take a second serve return and come to the net straight off the return to create that immediate time pressure. Um, you know, can you do that two or three times a set? It just creates a little bit more pressure. So using the net as a form of pressure is, is something that we did not see in these finals and I, I think um, should be used by these top players um, more and more and I think is a, is a place that is missing. And what it comes down to, in my opinion, is that these pros don't have the skill. They haven't developed the skill with the volley from a younger age. So to have the competence or confidence to do it, in big finals or big matches isn't there. So if you're a coach out there, continue to uh, you know help the players understand when they can take the net and then obviously work on their fundamentals so they have the skill. And again, not necessarily to make a low volley from the service line and close for another volley and then get up for an overhead. I'm talking about coming forward when you have advantage and you can play a high volley uh, and finish the point like that. Good point, Chris. That's all I have for the similarities. <laughs> Well, I'm sure there's more, but, uh, you know, we got to keep it short. But One of the things I found fascinating, Chris, I'd love to get your take on this. It came out recently that the women's final was watched by more people than the men's final. Um, I think we've seen this a couple of times before, but it's not wow. typical. I don't think that it goes that way. So the viewership for the women's final was higher than for the men's final. And I started thinking, I wonder why that is. And I wondered, is it because... The serve is dominating. So I looked at the breaks in the men's final. There were three breaks. In the women's final, there were five breaks. So not a significant yeah. difference. But I think that one of the things you want to talk about with difference was the rally length. I'll, I'll start you off with 
the one to four rally length. So the short rallies, that's two shots on each side. So a serve, a return, a serve plus one and a return plus one. On the men's side, that happened 58% of the time. On the women's side, that happened 70% of the time. So a lot of the points were short. You had some more detail around that. So why don't you expand on that and talk about the rally length differences between the men and the women? Some listeners out there said, how, how would you get to the net against you know, Rybakina or Sabalenka when they're trying to just force mistakes or hit winners. They're trying to hurt you so that the points go very fast. So it would be tough to, to find a situation to get in on that unless you're trying to take a second serve or, or serve volley, maybe not so much in the men. But one thing that really stood out is this a guy from home said, hey, did you know there was only, I think he said there was one rally that was longer than nine plus. So I think for the people out there listening, I think we've talked about this before. It breaks down to one to four, five to eight uh, rally length, and then nine plus. So like you said, Stephen, the nine to four for the women was 70% and the one to four for the men was 58. So it just shows like the, the, the points in the women's, the women's match were going much quicker. It was more serve dominant and serve plus one. Five to eight for the, for the women was 21% and five to eight for the men was 20%. And then if you think about with a, that, my buddy that said there was only one rally longer than nine plus, which actually wasn't true. Uh, the nine plus for the, for the women was 9%. So they had 19 rallies that were over nine shots and their longest rally of the match was 14 shots. The nine plus for the men was 21. So I want to, what's so incredible about the men and I, I rarely do you see this is the nine plus rallies was 21% in the men and the five to eight for the men was 20. So they had longer nine plus than, than the intermediate five to eight, super athletic. It was fun to watch. I, I will say this, if I put together and when I was watching the match, any shot that was over 15 shots, so the women had zero. Their longest rally, I said, was 14. But the men had five over 15, four over 16, one was 17, one was 18, one 19, one 25, and one 27. So, so, so they had 14 points that were longer than the women's longest. If you think that the women had 19 nine-plus shots, the men had 15-plus shots. So, I mean, they were really extending rallies and it turned out to be pretty physical. So that's really pointing to the fact what you talked about earlier, the game's getting faster, women are getting more powerful, they're ending points earlier than probably they ever have. The weaponry is there on the women's side um, and perhaps the athleticism on the men's side is a little better. So they're extending rallies a little bit more. Um, and they're able to get to more balls and defend more often. I'm sure if we look at different individual matches where some of the girls are perhaps smaller and a bit more athletic, you, you'd see some longer points. So it's definitely yeah, yeah. A, a little bit based on that. But that is a that is a major difference between the men's and the women's final. It seems like the women's final was very it was faster points, and only you know only one out of ten points is going more than nine shots, whereas on the men's side, it's up to 21%. So that's yeah. significantly more. And then obviously to have 14 rallies go nine plus, is it, it makes the men's match more physical and hence why the men's match, despite having less points, was longer in duration at almost three hours where the uh, the women's match was around two. two and and I remember when Bianca Andreescu played Serena in the finals, I think it was like 2019. One to four for, for in that match was like 67%. And I, I was thinking, holy 
crud. I, you know, rarely do I see it that high. And this was even higher, 70%. So it, the women, it was serve plus one or just serve in most cases. It was quite impressive. Yep. We're definitely seeing that more on the women's store. The fact that the women are serving better and better. We've touched on it before. Um, but I think if you go back, you know, a, a generation, the serves weren't nearly as big. And then the generation before that probably was more like, all right, on the women's side, it was more, all right, let's, you know, kind of start the point with some exceptions. But now it's just becoming more and more prevalent that the women are serving bigger, gaining advantage with first serves and having better and better second serves. Last week, Claire played, uh, maybe two weeks ago now, she played Samson Nova. And I remember thinking, gosh, she, this girl serves like a guy. I mean, she was serving huge. So yeah, it's it's getting bigger and she was hitting hard and yeah, it kind of reminded me of watching the Australian Open final. The game is getting bigger. You know, you better be ready for that and account for it in some way. Yeah, and I can't help but put my coach's hat on here for a second and just urge, you know, any of the listeners that are coaches or up and coming tennis players that to me, two major things when you're learning to serve and coming up. And of course, there's more detail and a lot of things that you can go into. But I think as early as possible, you want to get the kids into a continental grip. That way, you know, they learn to actually drop the racket down. Uh, without a continental grip, it's very hard to kind of develop a, a better and better serve. So as early as you can get the kids in a continental grip. And then the other thing is, please turn your lower body, get used to turning that hip out when they're young. They won't have the leg drive they won't have the strength to push but if you can get that fundamental right from the beginning when the strength comes in and the, and the elasticity comes in you'll be able to have a better serve thinking about this when i was tagging the match and you make some great points but I was thinking, I've had about three or four coaches send me videos of uh, CT Pasta's serve and say, how come he doesn't look at how bad this is? Or if you look at his stats, I think he's top 10 for first serve percentage made. And he's like four for first serve points one, or maybe he's five. I wonder how much he needs to really work on, even though the serve does not look great. You know, he's falling to the left when he hits it is is it is it would you consider that a priority for him or you know hey some people can get away with that you know he's much taller what, what, what do you think on that well i think like we've talked about before in any technical aspects there's things that are fundamental and there are things that are style now if i look at sitsipas's serve I would say that he loads well, he turns his lower body well, he generates power from the ground. Obviously, he has the right grip. He has great flexibility and athletic ability to generate power, um, not only through his load, through the kinetic chain, but also with his flexibility in his arm and his back. The only thing that I see with him is, yes, he falls left and yes, he opens up. So he opens more, he opens up a little bit more and, and left. He falls a bit more left than most people, but he's still getting energy from the ground and transferring it into the serve. And, and it looks different to, say, a Federer who stays side on for as long as anybody out there. Sitsipas opens and rotates early. But I mean, again, if you look at, you know, the difference between Rayonic, who's very sideways, stays very sideways, even up until contact, and then look at Kyrgios, who's a lot more open at contact. They both have amazing serves. So they do the fundamentals very well, but their style is a little bit different. So I would think that Sitsipas's style doesn't look ideal, but the fundamentals he still gets to, and that's why he's able to serve well. I don't think it is a priority. If they're, if they're his stats where he's that high up, 
as far as first serve percentage and first serve points won, because those two don't often go together, then he's doing very well with his serve and uh, would largely leave it alone. And it's not like he can't kick the ball or slice the ball. He can do both of those. Not concerned about yeah. his serve, Chris. One other stat I had to share, Chris, that I looked at. Serve plus one. I think as coaches, we talk about serve plus one, find your forehand. How often can you find your forehand? It's the more dominant shot. Even players who have better backhands, I think, is looking more and more for forehands in the middle. Much more on the on the men's side. And it's starting to become more and more on the women's side. But in this match, it was interesting. To me, I had Sissipas at around 70% of serve plus one forehands. And Djokovic was at about 60% of serve plus one forehands. Because that And that makes sense to me. Djokovic has an amazing backhand. Yeah. He won't be as urgent to find a forehand. Whereas Sissipas has to be more urgent to find a forehand. Because his backhand, although it's good, isn't as dominating in his forehand. But when you look at the women's side, uh, Sabalenka was combined, you know, juice and add around 50% of forehands and Rybakina was just under 50% at around 48% of looking for a forehand. So both those girls, Rybakina and Sabalenka, I think probably, I would think, rely on their backhand. They would trust their backhand a little bit more in big situations. So perhaps they're not looking for the forehand as much, but... I found that interesting that the men are still looking for forehands a lot more than the women, although I do think on the women's side, it's becoming more forehand dominant in the middle on that first shot. CT pass, I think that his forehand kind of broke down. But yeah, I know he was looking for the forehand after the serve. I like that stat. Quickly, I had a look at the Australian Open winners from the past years. Now, if you look at the men, okay, it's been dominated by Djokovic, uh, Nadal obviously won last year and Federer in 18 and 17. But you got to go back to Warinka in 14 to get away from the big three. And you have to go all the way back to 2005 for the next guy. So since 2005, the only other person apart from the big three that has won the Australian Open has been Warinka. And we know that he's at the tail end of his career. So, I mean, I'm sure we all expect Djokovic to kind of continue to dominate tennis this year. I do anyway, but it's much more interesting on the women's side. If you look at the Australian Open winners and finalists from the last sort of five years, here are the names that come up. So Ashley Barty, retired. Danielle Collins was final last year. The year before was Osaka, who is in and out of tennis right now, pregnant, so won't be playing for a while. Jennifer Brady was a finalist in 21, who's had a really tough run with injuries. And I think we both believe that she has the game to get back there, but she needs to regain her health, which I know that she's working on hard. In 2020, it was Kennan and Muguruza. In 19, it was Osaka and Kvitova. And in 18, it was Wozniacki and Halep. Isn't it interesting, as we go through all those names on the women's side, a lot of them, those past winners, aren't really in tennis anymore. Halep is in a drug suspension. Wozniacki's retired. Osaka is kind of semi-retired. Kvitova hasn't really been a force in the late stages of majors. Muguruza is kind of dropping out of the top 10 in that area, hasn't sort of been at the end of majors. Kennan has dropped right back, and we haven't seen her at the upper echelon of the game for a while. Jennifer Brady's been injured, and then Danielle Collins didn't defend her or get close to defending her final, but she's still around and competing so is that a bad sign for Sabalenka and Rybakina that all these Australian Open winners of the past sort of five years fallen away? Or do you think that we're going to see Sabalenka and Rybakina in tennis and in contention in the late stages of majors throughout this year and in the coming years? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I guess they, they would say, well, there's no 
you know, there could be many more men if it wasn't for, you know, the big three. We, we could be having the same discussion. But the way I see, I watched a great video of Sabalenka and how much work she's put in on her serve and her forehand. And it started, I think, at Cincinnati last year with this new technical coach. And it was awesome. So it seems like she works really hard. I know Rybakina, I, I get to watch her a lot. And she's a very hard worker. And they got just amazing weapons. I, I have a feeling we'll see them pretty consistently, but you never know. I would, would have said the same thing about Osaka, you know, so you, I guess you just never know. Yeah. And it's not so, if you talk about Osaka, I don't think it's so much tennis that she's lost or has sort of derailed her. It's things away from tennis. She obviously had some mental health challenges and yeah. the star sort of that she, she became, yeah. um, I think was a, a big load to carry. Um, and I certainly don't know anything, but I, I can imagine that it was kind of those things that have that have meant that she's not contending anymore, not so much her tennis skill. So yeah. I happen to agree. I, I think Sabalenka and, and Rybakina have big games. I think they're going to be around. I think the women's game is, is very interesting at the moment because there are so many that can contend late majors. And on the men's side, obviously, uh, you know, uh, Djokovic is, is still there and, and the dominant force, but, you know, now Federer is gone and, Nadal, it seems like for the, you know, many, many years in a row is having injury problems. So it'd be interesting to see whether he can come back and dominate on the clay like he has before. But I think there's a there's a new guard coming in the men and, and it's going to be an interesting 2023. Chris, thanks for your time today. That's going to do oh, us yeah. for uh, our first one of crunching the numbers. But we look forward to bringing you more throughout 2023. Thanks for listening. And if anyone, you know, has any questions or thoughts or would like us to investigate anything, please write into the first serve and, and let us know. The first serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel.